0: Trust everyone had a uh, happy Thanksgiving, and since today is the first Sunday of Advent, it's only appropriate that we um, look at the story of Advent, the story of Christ's first coming. So if you will, let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and begin reading with verse 1. We'll read down through verse 14. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, which Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered even to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for... The coming of Christ our King. And Lord, it's during this season that we remember your first coming and we remember all that it entails. And Father, as we proclaim your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would be with my lips, that you would enable me to speak the words that you would have me to speak. In Christ's name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning, The Meaning of Christmas. I would hope that as we begin this Advent season and as we anticipate uh, the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, that we would be able to meditate and think on uh, this particular account of the birth of Christ and also on some of the things we're going to discuss uh, this morning. And I know that most of you, if you've been around church for a very long period of time, have probably heard this particular passage uh, preached often at this time of year. Uh, but there are a couple different contexts which are, which are mentioned here that I'll just briefly um, Discuss The first is the actual historical account of the birth of Christ. That's found in verses 1 down through verse 7 where uh, Luke, the writer of this gospel, tells of the coming of Christ, the historical setting, the government, those who were in power during the time, what was happening sociopolitically in the day, Uh, and then the actual birth of Christ itself. What were the circumstances? Joseph and Mary uh, coming together and Mary being betrothed but being pregnant with child and then giving birth to her firstborn son and wrapping him in swaddling clothes, laying him in the manger. That's the first context, the historical context. The proof that that Luke, the writer of the gospel, spends the time in order to show us that God invaded time and became part of time and space, became part of history, and there are historical events, historical dates, historical figures surrounding uh, his coming. The second context, however, and this is the one that we'll spend time looking at this morning, is that of the shepherds. Now, the shepherds, interestingly enough, uh, were not highly looked upon in Israel. They were a lowly profession. Those who kept sheep, they were even, you might say, at the bottom rung of the ladder. But he spends an equal amount of time, or nearly an equal amount of time, talking about them as he does that in the historical context for the birth of Christ. And so uh, we'll look this morning and and use as our key verse verse 14 uh, really unpacking and discovering according to scripture what is the true meaning of Christmas. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that most of you are thinking, well, I've been in church my entire life or perhaps a long time. I know what the meaning of Christmas is. It's celebrating the birth of Christ. It's celebrating uh, the incarnate one, word becoming flesh, the word of God himself becoming man. And that's true. But why is such an event a celebratory occasion? Why is such an event something that has become the dividing line of history? In essence, why is the first advent of Christ, the incarnation, meaningful and of value to the human race? We'll look at that this morning in three different parts, and I believe that um, the first two at least are found here in verse 14, and the third is by way of application uh, what we can take from the message of the herald here, the message of the angel uh, as it relates to the meaning of Christmas. For the first point, though, and it's found there in your notes, uh, Christmas and the glory of God. If you look at the angelic message and you see uh, the context in which the angel made the proclamation... It's ironic to me that even though Christ, the Son of God, could have been born among the palace halls of the rich and famous, and the news of his birth could have been heralded among those who were the who's who of the day, among those whose names are even registered here in the passage that we just read. But instead, the focus of the writer of Luke's gospel, the focus of Luke, goes from the actual historical context of the birth of Christ, to these men who are unnamed, to the lowly in Israel, the profession which was an humble profession, men who no doubt would find their name, if recorded anywhere, on the list of of the outcast and the downtrodden in Israel instead of on who's who or on the list of invitations from governors and noted officials. And so here we have the shepherds who were keeping their flock by night. And to them the angel appears and announces the glad tidings of great joy, the great news that the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had been foretold from the beginning of time, even all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head, that he had come. And then, I believe, the very meaning, the very heart of the message of the angel is summarized when that one angel is joined by a heavenly host, and together they declare in verse 14, first, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the first meaning, the first thing that we can learn here about Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas, is that ultimately it's about the glory of God. Christmas, after all, is God's doing. It is God becoming man. In the very essence, the very meaning of the event, of the advent of Christ. As the Christmas hymn says, is gloria in excelsis Deo. It's glory to God in the highest. It is glory to God who has created man and who has provided a way of redemption for mankind. And so from the get-go we must understand Christmas first and foremost to be about the glory of God. And so I would encourage you, even as we just start the hustle and bustle of the season, and as we begin to participate in the festivities, which are all fine and good, and as we decorate our tree, and as we you know, hang the greens, and as we look with an anticipation to a few weeks from now when we celebrate the actual day itself, I would encourage you to take a step back, just for a moment, And to realize that the true meaning of this time of year, this sacred season, the season of Advent, is the glory of God. So much so that when the angel pronounces or declares the birth of Christ to the shepherds, that the angelic host begins by saying glory to God in the highest. Now, we are tempted to understand Christmas from a man-centric perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, oftentimes when we think of Christmas, we automatically jump to the benefit of the incarnate one, the fact that we are saved, that we are reconciled to God because of his birth and rightfully so i think to some extent because after all that is the benefit to the bride and also to christ that we are in a sense his bride we are his just reward for his death on the cross for his obedience to god through suffering through a life of obedience through a life of of uh, through bearing the, the punishment on our behalf that we justly deserve but really our salvation and i want you to think about this not only now but meditate on it throughout the Christmas season. Our salvation is a means to an end. That end is the glory of God. And so when the angel begins the proclamation there to the shepherds, they begin by first declaring glory to God in the highest. Oftentimes, if we focus instead on the benefit of Christmas, or God forbid, even the trappings of Christmas, the way that we celebrate the day, the, the, the joy and the festivities of the season, and we overlook the logical flow here to verse 14, then the meaning of the day becomes lost in nothing more than, than legalism that is overdressed, like joy, or gaiety that is underdressed in the overall goodwill of the day. We see this around us now more than ever, where people celebrate Christmas without Christ. They understand that there is an aspect of love and joy and peace to this season, but they don't know that at the very heart of the day, at the very heart of the event, the advent of Christ's first coming, is the glory of God. And so we must understand, first and foremost, that the coming of Christ is to bring God glory. Now, how does that happen? How does the advent, the first advent of Christ, glorify God? I was thinking this past week of a movie that came out last year. Maybe some of you have seen it. Perhaps not. It is a foreign film made in the UK. But in 2014, the movie My Old Lady came out, starring Kevin Kline and Maggie Smith. Um, And in this movie, uh, Kevin Kline plays an actor named Matthias Goad, and Matthias had just inherited a great uh, fortune upon his father's death. His father left him this apartment building in in France, and uh, he had never been there before, or at least it had been a long time. He was a child when he left, uh, and his father had passed. He didn't have a a very good relationship with his father, so uh, he decided to go check out his inheritance. And uh, his his intent was that he would sell it for as much as he could get out of it and and then return back to the States where he was living. Well, when he... When he goes to the apartment, he sees there the, this old lady that's been uh, living in the apartment apparently for at least 70 years, and she's 92 years old, so for the better part of her life, and she has a daughter that's living there with her, and, and through a series of events, of course, he first pronounces that, that he's there only to sell the apartment, and as soon as he does, he'll kick them out, and they'll be left homeless out on the street. And through a series of events, he realizes, the longer he stays, that his wife, his life, is interwoven with the lives of both the old lady as well as her daughter. That all of them knew his father better than he did. And that even though they knew him and there was a lot of sorrow and a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain in in that relationship, uh, the longer he stayed, the more he realized that he couldn't sell the house because he was a part of that system. He was a part of that family. And so, in a very interesting way, he was able to make peace with his father. He was able to be reconciled posthumously with his father. And uh, when he was approached by, the, the, by a gentleman that he originally was going to sell the house to, uh, he, and the guy asked him why he had a change of mind, he simply replied, it's a family thing. Well, for the human race, the incarnation is quite literally a family thing. Because when Christ invaded our space, our world, when he invaded history and time and became part of our experience as a man, to reconcile us to an estranged father. Not a father who is estranged because of any fault of his own, but because of our own sin and our own negligence and depravity. And when he did that, the very means of his coming Yes is to bring glory to God, and the way that that is accomplished is by bringing man and God near. So that leads me to the second point, which is there in your notes, which is that the meaning of Christmas is ultimately for the glory of God, and that God is glorified by man and God being brought near, by reconciliation. Man who was created in the image of God for the sake of glorifying God, who had taken on a subversive role, in an attempt to uh, make ourselves God, which is in essence what Adam did when he chose to obey the desire of his flesh instead of obeying God, that God became one of us in Christ so that man and God might be brought near. We know the why of Christmas. The why is for the glory of God. But the how is here noted by the angels in the reference on earth, peace with those whom he is pleased. Now, it's interesting also to note that there is a, a contrast here in the message of the angels when he declares glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace with all, among all with whom he is pleased. So there is a distinction there, not only of distance, not only of a God who is far off physically, but also relationally. And that God is brought near. In the very name that is attributed to Christ by the prophet Isaiah, Emmanuel, God is with us. And so, God is glorified by the reconciliation of man and God. And the means of that reconciliation, of course, is the incarnate one. Now, if you remember the uh, childhood cartoon of of, uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas and little Linus, his statement in the Christmas play, you may know that verse 14 reads a little bit differently. In fact, if you're familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, it says, on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And that's what Linus said in the Christmas play. Well, let me just briefly say, without going into too much detail, that um, various versions are, are, are different. Uh, various Bible versions interpret this particular Greek text differently, and really the the issue is over uh, the presence or absence of one Greek word in various manuscripts. I I personally think that the ESV has it correct, and that uh, based on the presence of of this one Greek word in in the manuscript, as well as the overarching story of Scripture, uh, that ultimately there are those with whom God is not pleased. And the peace of Christ's coming... Is not for everyone. You cannot know that peace unless you've been reconciled to God. And so, for those reasons, I suggest that even though Linus was charming in his uh, in his quote that on earth peace, goodwill to men, and that may be part of our subconscious memory of Christmas plays, uh, that really, as it is in- interpreted here in verse fourteen, that is the most accurate interpretation of the Greek text, which says, "And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased." So then the question is begged, well, how do we please God? How can God be pleased with us? The only way that we can please God is by believing in Christ and his finished work. Faith is a gift of grace. And so ultimately, it's nothing to do with us, but it's a gift from God enabling us to believe in the finished work of Christ, who not only lived a perfect life on our behalf and therefore his obedience and his righteousness is credited to us, charged to our account, but he also died the death that we deserve so that we could live in his life, live in his righteousness. And so the way that we please God is by being in Christ. And to some extent, this is what the Jewish elders were asking Christ in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, when They asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what must we be doing to please God? And Jesus Christ responded to them by saying, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How can we believe? How can we have faith? Faith comes by hearing, according to Hebrews 11, and hearing by the word of God. But the Word of God, working with the Holy Spirit, as we've been learning through uh, the previous series of, of Pastor Robert, enables our heart, which is dead in sin, to be quickened to life, so that we believe in Christ. And the righteousness that is lawfully His becomes ours. So, with the coming of the Incarnate One, man and God are brought near This is why Paul made no bones about it in Colossians verses 19 through 20 when he said that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So why is the gospel, why is the birth of this lowly child in a manger there in Bethlehem declared to no name to shepherds something to be celebrated? It's something to be celebrated because God and man can be reconciled. God and man who are worlds apart because of our sin and disobedience, who are estranged, can be made a family again. That we are heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. So we bring glory to God or or the advent of Christ, the birth of Christ, Christmas... Brings glory to God by making possible the reconciliation of God and man. Now, my third and final point that I want to make here from the key verse, verse 14, is one of application. Peace among men. Now, when you and I think of peace, we think of it oftentimes in terms of the English meaning of that word which means simply the absence of turmoil or the absence of of, uh, hostility, whether it's between God and man or between man and man. But the peace that is declared there by the angel is not simply the absence of hostility. It is a holistic peace, a peace in the Hebraic sense of the word. Shalom, the root word of which shalom simply means wholeness or perfection. So think of the peace that is being declared there as being a peace of perfection, a peace that is all-pervasive, a peace that is comprehensive, that addresses not simply a relationship between two individuals or between man and God, but also all of life. It is a cosmic peace. Now, to whom is that peace given? Is it given to everyone? Well, if you accept the... um, interpretation of the writers of the ESV, which I do know it's given to those with whom Christ is pleased, with whom God is pleased. And the only way that we can please God is if we are in Christ. But the application of that, the implication that is here taken from the text, and this is reiterated by the apostle Paul later when he's writing to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 12 verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And again, there's the Hebrew concept of peace, which Paul would have been familiar with. The shepherds, by the way, they would have known automatically what the angel was declaring when he said, peace among those with whom God is pleased. A comprehensive peace. Yes, the the removal of the distance between God and man, but also the removal of everything that makes man less human. Human in the sense of how we were created to be. Human in the sense of being made in the image and likeness of God. A shadow of the divine. His breath was breathed into our nostrils. And yet we chose a lesser glory. The glory of the idolatry of our own heart. And so this piece is a comprehensive one. And it's one that ultimately enables us as Christians to bring glory to God. Now, many who are familiar with the history of the church and understand the distinction that I've made between our English understanding of peace and the Hebraic understanding a little bit, um, have made the accusation, well, if that concept of peace is truly what is intended, then why throughout church history has there been so much suffering? Why so much pain? Why even now, perhaps in your life, as a believer, as we prepare for, for this season, as we begin to meditate on the coming of Christ, you may ask, why is my heart troubled? Well, most of us who are familiar with the teaching of the kingdom, the aspect of God's kingdom being already and not yet, we know that even though God's kingdom's here, we long for the day when it's here in its fullness. And so that's partly the answer. But I would suggest to you, based on this particular verse and our passage, that for many of us, we seek peace for the sake of peace. And what the angel is sharing with the shepherds is that peace, even peace between God and man, is not an end in itself, but it brings glory to God. And so the peace that we seek ultimately ought to be for the sake of bringing God glory. Forefront in our mind as we progress throughout this season ought to be the meditation. How can I bring glory to God? How can my life, how can my relationships, how can my personal endeavors on a daily basis bring glory to God? How can my life be a demonstration of this proclaim, this proclamation of the angelic host, glory to God in the highest? If that's the meaning of Christmas then how can that be? Well, I believe that it's not only in our relationship with God, first and foremost, but also, and that would be, you might say, the vertical aspect of this peace, but also horizontally our relationship with others. We should seek to be at peace with all men, not for our own sake or for the sake of peace, as desirable and pleasurable as it is, but rather for the sake of God's glory. And again, I reference peace there in the holistic sense of the word instead of simply the absence of hostility as you and I often think of of peace uh, when we think of it. So, when we ask ourselves the question, what is the meaning of Christmas? From the vantage point of the Gospel of Luke, specifically from the message of the angel delivered to the shepherds, The meaning of Christmas is first and foremost to the glory of God. How does God get glory out of Christmas? By the reconciliation between God and man. And that is what Christ came to make not simply possible, but a reality in the life of all those with whom he is pleased. So, the way to apply this teaching in our own life today as we go about the festivities of the season, as we send gifts, buy gifts one for another, and send cards, and sing Christmas songs and Christmas carols, is to reflect on the familiar words of our very own catechism. The shorter catechism, which most of you, if you've been in the Presbyterian Church for any length of time, you probably know the answer already. You anticipate what I'm about to say. But the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to glory... To bring glory to God and enjoy Him forever. And so what is the meaning of the Incarnation? To bring glory to God by means of reconciling God and man. Let us remember that the true meaning of Christmas is God's glory. And the reconciliation of sinners which required the birth, life, and death of the Incarnate One, Christ He is the fountainhead, the true means by which God is glorified. Let us remember that, reflect on it, and give thanks during this season. So for us as believers, the incarnation should not simply be man-centric. Yes, it's something to appreciate or to declare thanks and glory to God for the reconciliation between God and man. But rather, we should be God-centric and realize that our reconciliation, our salvation, is a means to an end. This is why Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, makes this statement. He says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, but according to the counsel of his own will. So that, so that gives you an explanation of why we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. God, our Father, we thank you for sending your only son. And as we think about your birth, as we think about your first advent during this sacred season, we pray that first and foremost in our our hearts and our minds would be bringing you glory, giving you glory. And we know, Lord, that the means by which that is accomplished is the reconciliation, the salvation of those with whom you are pleased, those who are in Christ. And so, Father, we rejoice in this holiday season and pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to think and meditate on these truths and be changed thereby. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.